But yeah, welcome. It's nice to have you all here. Um, I'm asking the first question though, how do we end injustice? Some of you just come in, so I'll give you all the opportunity. Talk to the person next to you. How do we end injustice? As I just introduced, on today's return to the electives, we're talking about ending injustice, looking at things like democratic reform, other forms of reform, grassroots community change, abolition, and also revolution. Have a think about what you would do in these circumstances. For those that already came, listen back to yourselves. Others, listen into what the students at Mayfield have to say and think about what makes a better world. Feel free to skip ahead as well. Um, you can listen into just those moments where I'm talking. It'll be much more clear if you want, or keep listening to the students. Okay, just a quick intro discussion because I think we're going to have some more ideas. So, thank you very much. And I'm going to start with Bailey because I know his name. Um, Bailey, how do we end injustice? Um, so, one thing I thought of, well, I think it's a very complex subject, but um, I think the trends are the first one. So, basically, um, let's say with the Free Palestine movement or the Black Lives Matter movement, I feel like social media plays such a big role in it because people set it as trends for other people to follow it. So, let's say social media influences. When they set it, it's like, yeah, everyone's on this movement now, yeah, we're going to go and protest all of this, yeah, and it becomes somewhat just, yeah, but then after it, when it's not so much a trend, it's, it kind of just dies down. No matter what is still happening, you know, it, no, nobody's speaking on it anymore. So I feel like we need to stop making the trends and start looking at it as just humanitarian rights, basically. Um, Thank you. I'm, I'm going to do no comments and just hear from everyone. Um, any other ideas, anyone? How do we end injustice? Realistically, you can't. So statistically, you can't. Yeah, oh, realistically, sorry, I don't. Yeah. Okay, why? Like for first of all, injustice. Like if you were to ask everyone what injustice means, everyone's gonna have different opinions. It's not. It's not like a set thing. It's judgmental and it's personal to you. And then there's always like there's too many problems in the world for everything to become just. That sounds sad. <laughs> yes. I think communication is the key. Um, if you can both come up, if you can basically both speak about or like vocalise what your problems are, you can then be think about how you can solve that. But I feel like the first thing that needs to happen is that it needs to be out in the open so everyone knows about it. Yeah, I mean a prime example of that is like South Africa, right? When um, the apartheid in South Africa came to an end there was like an open discussion between um, occupiers and the people um, and Nelson Mandela was like a big part of that you can look into that if you're interested but thank you, so that's some intro stuff um, basically what I'm going to do is, this is going to be quite a, like a talk type vibe but I'm going to ask you some questions along the way um, the first thing that I want to remind you of though is what happened the last time so we actually did another elective quite a while ago talking about um, capitalism, white supremacy and decolonization. And this is more on the side of the question, what is injustice, right? So just as a recap, and for those that weren't there, um, some of the things we spoke about were like class divisions and the things that means for, for people um, and how the world is structured and organized. Spoke about migration and how many people in the migration process are dehumanized and what happens to those people in those conditions. Spoke about colonialism, about it spreading around the world, about sort of um, relationships between occupying countries, colonizing countries and the colonized. Um, we spoke about neo-colonial industry, meaning like businesses and factories and the, the type of institutions that exploit um, through capitalism, um, but as a remnant of colonial power structures. Sorry, I'm being very quick with this because explaining that in depth would take a long time. Um, 
detention and imprisonment, so things like, well, prisons themselves, actually, and also migration, um, the way in which um, migrants are kept in detention um, in a state of sort of outside of the law um, kind of situation. Um, whiteness as well, about white supremacy, about the dominance of whiteness culturally and also materially, so in terms of um, that relationship with global capitalism then um, as a system that has many different layers. I'm never going to be able to go into that in about two sentences. And the English language as well as part of something that carries the culture and um, dictates which communities are born into power compared to those that aren't. Um, so that's like a range of some of the things that we spoke about in terms of injustice. And this is one of the quotes, no one colonises innocently. No one colonises with impunity either. That a nation which colonises, that a civilization which justifies colonisation, that was really the key part, justifying colonisation. How do you justify the control and the leadership and the exploitation and taking of resources and um, labour? Um, how do you justify that? And a big part of it is through dehumanisation. Um, Césaire said it's already a sick civilization, a civilization which is morally diseased. Um, and here, it is in the knowledge of the genuine conditions of our lives that we must draw our strength to live and our reasons for acting. So when you, whenever you're trying to find out how to tackle injustice, you must understand injustice, right? You must know what it is first. So that's why things like communication, education, essential, right? But even if the world understands, that doesn't mean a change in behaviours, right? The system still continues to work as it does, or systems, many of the different things that function in the way that they do in order to create and reproduce injustice still exist, right? So, how do you get the government to listen? Again, talk to people next to you. How do you get the government to listen to you? If you want to change, if you want to tackle injustice, how do you get the government to listen? It's limited. Because in politics, the people don't have much of a say. It's in, like, in politics. The Sometimes their leadership is the right way. The way they take their leadership is the right way. How would you get the government to listen? So there's the popular way of protest petitions, petitions, but that's like a combined effort. A good way would be somebody who knows who's aware of them, trying to solve the world, to get into power and to change. Okay, any ideas? How do we get the government to listen? What can we do to make the government listen to injustice and calls for change? Any ideas? Sorry? Shweb knows. What can we do to make the government listen? Protest. Recently, I've seen that how Palestinian uh, thing, how protests really helped with everything. Even though that the Israeli just stopped all that, but they still started. And after there's no, no uh, protest after the Israel stopped uh, the occupation and stuff. But after it's still happening, and because there are no protests, we haven't seen any different things. So I think it does affect um, the government taking action and stuff. Okay, so protest is one avenue, right? Things can happen through protest. People are hearing, I actually don't know the last weekend in London when there wasn't a protest. I think last week there was like one for clubs to be opened. Um, so there have been a lot of protests um, and they tries to make the government listen, right? Palestine has had a, quite a few in it. Always gets the biggest numbers. Um, cool, any other strategies? There must be other stuff than protest. Yep. Yeah. 
politicians. Um, so like, basically, I think the idea of like getting the government to listen is just basically, we live in a democracy, which needs power to the people, which therefore means the government has to listen, um, which means things like protests, petitions, like there's actually one petition, which one was it? There's a lot that have been like debated within parliament, but one that kind of made me giggle, let's say, is um, moving school time to 10, so like we start at 10 instead of like 9 and 8. Like I signed that myself, yeah. um, and it actually got debated in Parliament whether that should happen, but you know, I was quickly just straight, no. Um, but yeah, we just exercise more democratic. Yeah, if a petition gets 100,000 um, signatures in the UK, it has to go and be discussed by the government. So it gets discussed and petitioning works in order, well, in getting them to discuss it in Parliament. But how long that lasts for and what that means is another question. Because actually a lot of things get 100,000 people engaged. You see tweets every day that get more than like 300,000 people engaged. So they probably deal with a lot of things on that front. So petitions, protests, what's the main stake in democracy? Voting, right? So voting is one. Yeah, you can get the government to listen through that. Anything else? Emails, yeah, good. Social media, yeah, you can definitely just at people directly, right? Yeah, and people do and they get, it has a, quite a big impact, yeah. Yeah. So I think these methods require like a huge effort from a large amount of people. So what if a person notices an injustice and he hasn't, it's a minority, so they don't have backing. Yeah. The only real way is to get like power or influence and either influence the government directly or talk to people and try and influence them to start doing petitions or whatever. Well, good. So you've tapped into another side of what democratic reform is, which is sort of think tanks and research. There are a lot of, and you might want to consider this as like a career route as well, because there's quite a lot of jobs in it, um, working in social research trying to understand how um, the country works on many different levels, trying to find data, trying to find information in order to try and lobby the government. That means try and make them believe in the policies that you come up with and work for your interests. I feel like injustice is a lot to do with marketization as well. It's a lot, I think everything evolves around marketization to be honest. It's all about making money. But I feel like if you can offer something to the government that they're gonna like, I feel like they would listen because obviously they, they're always trying to make more money so if you can offer something maybe it's shared out with business if they do something try and you know negotiate you know <laughs> they might listen so offer, offer the money yeah offer the money <laughs> yeah the, i mean the, yeah. <laughs> the government are very invested in the systems that exist yeah. including capitalism right yeah. um yeah and i i mean you've let me on too my little bit, like I said, lecture talk, lecture talk. So, reform. Reform means keeping the system the same, um, but amending it through its own mechanisms, right? So these mechanisms that we spoke about, they are a part of looking at the system and being a part of the system and supporting it, um, but changing it from within, right? Um, so different types are voting, writing letters to MPs as well. We didn't mention that, but students at this school have done it recently. Yep. Yeah. Um, protesting in accordance with the law, um, journalism, and social media is included in journalism, I'd say, um, influencing public policy and lobbying, and also working in the civil service, so having jobs literally in the government. But civil service kind of includes, like teachers, for instance, it includes um, doctors as well, so you could, you could include people that work for the government broadly and try and make a change from within on that front, right? Um, but there's a question of how limited it is, right? There's a very famous quote by Audre Lorde, which is, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, right? That means the systems, in the way that they exist, democracy, for instance, will not enable itself to undermine itself, right? Democracy won't end through democratic means, yeah? But should democracy end is the question. But the point here is that if you're trying to change or bring about justice, you've got a question if the system that exists is a system that will bring about justice. Because if the system that exists doesn't work and you try to use that same system in order to change it, you may struggle, right? That's what Audrey Lord is saying. It will make more sense as we come to get through stuff. But um, 
I mean, even within reform, even if the prime minister, for instance, cares, you've got to have a lot of people's backing as well in order to do something, which might be justified. You might want a lot of people involved. But the thing with reform and the thing with democracy is you've got to do a lot of these balances, right? Um, and in turn, you've got to think about who is prioritised, right? Because who is prioritised in a democracy? People, right? But which group of people? How so? But it's like, because I study politics, it's like, you know how he was talking about marketization and like how people can give money to like influence policies? It's because of the insider status. So, like, especially like with Tory governments, they like make policy that caters for their voters. So that's mostly like, like, like the middle class, the upper class. So, like, yeah. Okay, yeah, fair, right? So they have a big say in that, but isn't it the the people vote for who's going to be in power? Surely if it goes to the majority. It would still be undermined. Like, if you look at the Iraq invasion of 2003, three million people marched in London and still the Labour government still invaded in Iraq. They still, we don't have to listen to the people. Right, okay. Yeah. It doesn't really exist. It doesn't. It seems like it exists to some people, but it doesn't really. Depends on what it is, though. Like, if you listen, but then there's there's like a certain degree of like how much they listen. So like the Iraq war, for example, mm. right? They didn't listen, but that then led to his uh, downfall. So like he was brought down by the people because he didn't listen to the people. Mm. And like everyone knows Blair is like the person who took us to war, mm. rather than all the positive things he did before he took us to war. Yeah, it's the same with Cameron. I mean, but you say that now, a, a lot of the Labour Party are sort of, there's a whole camp of the Labour Party called the Blairites, right? And yeah. the, they're the ones kind of in charge at the moment as well, right? Um, Keir Starmer kind of follows in that tradition. So then, do people remember him for war? Or what do people remember him for? Yeah, that's very true. But okay, so, with de democratic reform, we have to think about what we're trying to change as well, as with everything, right? Um, can protests and letters and things like that stop capitalism, for instance, right? Can they stop patriarchy? Can they stop white supremacy, right? These are the big injustices. We have to think about them on a larger scale. So then what's the alternative to that, right? I've got the question, what else are protests for? Because it will lead you into another avenue of social change, another way of influencing change, right? So what are protests for? Talk to the people next to you. Then when I see it, when you go to a protest here, you just show some good food, some the byproduct of that is then spreading awareness, but at the core, you're just there to support support for opposed something. So that can be Uh, 
All right, yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the thing, the thing, like the most obvious example in capitalism is Grenfell, because Grenfell is about not funding the company, right? It's about limiting expenditure. That's kind of how it happened, right? So they try and figure out how that's going to end. It's not going to end by making things cheaper. Right? It's not going to end by working people in through exploitation, right? I mean, there might be a way to have capitalism involved in the restoration, but what would that be? Because really and truly, this is about cheaping out. It's about squeezing, right? Okay. Um, so, what else are protests for then? What do people think? What else are protests for? I don't know many names, but I know his names. Um, what else are protests for? What do they do? Why do people go to protests? Cool, for their voices to be heard, for them to, for things to be spoken about. I've kind of been itching to ask this question. What does awareness do? Does it get food on your plate? makes people think how does it is there a link is there is there a link to between awareness and ending injustice sorry yeah awareness builds education education then leads to what how how does education need to change if you know things that's not change not change but they start to understand the problems hopefully education allows for critical thinking yeah hopefully but so what happens when you have critical thinking? Like the more people that get educated, the more critical thinkers, the more pressure that's put on the government and the people, then it just starts like slowly going. Okay, so impact coming through sort of um, the pressures that an educated population might put on government. All right, things are getting more impactful here now, right? Once they get into the democratic side of things, the lobbying. All right. Does. I mean, we've seen that there might be an issue with democracy. Democracy isn't giving us the end of patriarchy, right? Or is it? Can it? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. So we wouldn't be having this conversation. Let's have a look at another avenue. So another avenue of making a change it's grassroots community work right so here we have a picture does anyone know what this picture is of it's in america it's not a segregated school so this is um the black panthers black panthers were a movement in america um following the civil rights movement um they were um they they got a lot of bad press because some of the stuff that they did included like um, exercising rights to the extent of that right so bringing like weapons to the foot of like a legal establishment saying that we have the right to defend ourselves and the law has said that we have the right to do it but because you've seen it, it um, black people doing it it's going to become something like there's going to be a reaction whereas you compare that to other stuff so they took they really pushed things to the limit but more of their work, actually a lot of their work, was about community. It was about actually supporting the people around them. Um, one of the main things that makes life easier is food, housing, right? It's shelter, it's having all of your basic needs met. So one of the main things that they did was run like food drives. They used to feed, they did a breakfast club. It's actually probably the origin of where breakfast clubs come from in schools and things like that right it's, it was very like visionary at the time in terms of we're just feeding kids right that was a part of the support they provided um, other things they would do they'd give people like legal advice directly they'd give people um, ways to negotiate the system at a very grassroots so sort of ground level right um, 
and it's it's a very we can't rely on the government kind of approach and we need to do things for ourselves because relying on an alternative system isn't going to make it happen right um so a quote from them i think most people when they think about the black panther party they think in very abstract caricatured terms they think about black fists in the air but they don't think about the actual people and the families and the relationships. The question of what justice is, is really important when you come to grassroots community work. Because when we think about it in the way that social media presents it, we think about things that are very distant from us, right? Very much things that are not in the remit of sort of local work. But when you come to grassroots community work, you realise what you actually have access to, what's available for you, and what you can make um, yourself as well, right? What can actually be done individually or as a community, more importantly, right? And in things like this, you start to tackle issues like mental health, right? Because community work is about that social space. It's about having um, people being drawn together, and support networks are obviously hugely important in mental well-being. Right? You have things like poverty being addressed almost directly. Right? Um, you have things like, obviously, unemployment being helped because people have money coming to them. Yeah? And actually, Bobby Seale, one of the like, sort of leaders and founders of the party, he names them a party of self-defense. Right? It's this idea that injustice comes from systems that kind of attack on many levels. Right? There is a certain violence that occurs through um, capitalist exploitation because they're, they're a socialist party as well. Um, and they, def they are protecting themselves. And that is what the grassroots is. So different avenues of grassroots work include like clubs, education, community psychology, things like community gardens where you're growing your own food rather than relying on um, like exploitative Tesco, um, things like, um, yeah, community housing as well. Um, and people organise also for solidarity and build up a movement of those committed to change to help do all of those things together, right? Strengthen numbers. There's also, at a grassroots level, what people can do directly, the question of disruption, right? Now, disruption is extremely controversial. So the grassroots does have a lot of um, impact when it uh, acts through disruption. Some things that people might have seen are like Black Lives Matter um, being in front of like planes at city airport and trying to prevent them from taking off when they're deporting immigrants. So they're directly stopping them from doing that. Another instance is Arconic. I don't know if you heard about them recently. It was on social media quite a bit. Arconic produce um, materials used in um, defense, in military, sorry, in, in armies, including with the Israeli army. They also helped to produce um, the materials that went on Grenfell. So there's a lot of work that they do that has been directly engaged with instances or spaces of injustice. So people went to Arconic and they basically closed it down. They protested in front of it, they stopped it from being able to function, and in stopping it from being able to function, those materials weren't produced, which slows down the rate of violence, basically, right? When an army doesn't have guns, they don't have the ability to kill as easily, right? Or when it's slowed down, they're less able to do that. So that's what disruption is. It's about stopping things directly from happening. Yeah. A lot of people get very angry about that. Imagine if you have uh, like loads of drivers come together and they decide to just park in the middle of the road everywhere in London. London comes to a stop. That's disruption, right? That works. It stops businesses from running. It stops certain things from happening. But you also have to question who's impacted by that. Right, um, some of the people that are impacted by that are the people that are engaged in these processes on a global level, 
but some of them are also people that are just getting bread on the table in their day to day in their nine to five, right? Okay, um, we also have vigils, remembrance. Um, vigils are hugely important in that they counter the process of dehumanization. It's only on the back of dehumanization that these things can be justified, right? If you don't believe someone is a human, then you can exploit, but then you can do all of these things that um, harm them, basically, right? So anything you can do to help humanize people will help injustice to be, well, will help prevent injustice. Um, also, establishing your own institutions of power that facilitate with care, that is a huge one. That would be extremely exciting if you're able to do that, but it is a big challenge. Stuff like black universities in America would be an instance of that, um, having their own sort of power within their own community and centering things around what people can do themselves. And crucially, um, as a worker, unionizing and collective bargaining rights, right? So the idea that you can come together as people who do the job and stop the job from being done by not being there, right? They need you as a worker, right? The employers need workers. And if the workers decide to not do the work, then the employer is going to need to respond. Like yeah, like strikes, right? That's what unions are. So unions do strike, do strikes. They also provide like legal support and protect their workers against, um, well, actually against many things. I was going to say employer um, discrimination or like um, oppression, but they they protect them against a lot of things. And actually, when we get to one of the later stages, unions have had an impact not just at the level of the workplace that you work in, but also at a more national level and potentially international level as well. So unions can have a big impact because businesses, which are the things that drive capitalism, require workers, right? But oh, also teaching health and self-defense. So being able to look after yourself. We live in a polluted city. Um, we live around crime, right? We live around um, violent police as well, right? So learning self-defense, being able to protect yourself against um, violence is another way of enabling um, a sort of grassroots change. It's about being able to protect yourself directly um, and teaching health is also a way of protecting yourself against um, climate change and some of the things that are also consequences of um, systems of capitalism. <laughs> so what are the risks and limitations? You still exist within this system and will continue to be exploited by it, right? Regardless of whether you are starting up your own systems, working for yourself, doing this, doing that, um, you still need to get food, right? You can't just devote your life to feeding others because then you yourself won't have food, right? Unless people decide to give it to you. But it's different, right? It's, you're relying on something then. Um, it creates strong government responses. Unionization poses a massive, a major threat to managers and it can risk job positions. And it could also just be putting out the fires of institutional damage. Right. Grassroots work may not actually get to the heart of the issue, um, and instead it's just putting out fires. Right. So the next question is, how far can you get with grassroots community work? What can it do? What impact do you have on a wider level? I kind of did speak about it, but I'll talk to the people next to you. Let's see if we get an idea. So unless everyone in the country decides to do the same thing together, you're not going to get very far. You might change your community for the better, but nationwide, it's the world. Yeah.
Because we did discuss this, um, I'm going to take, uh, what was your name again, sorry? Martin. Martin. What you just said. So what was it you just said? Uh, so, so in order to make something substantial, you have to rely on capital mm. in a capitalist society. So the only real way to make change would be to create your own community that doesn't rely on capital. Okay. Um, and on that note, we get to abolitionism, right? So the end of those systems, right? And I, the possibility of closing things, ending things. Now, most of the time when we think about abolition, um, I mean, actually, most of the most of the time, you think about slavery, right? But that form of abolition is, oh, I mean, it's still super relevant. Slavery still needs to be abolished. It still exists. But um, we're thinking of a different type of abolition here, and it's um, prisons and police, right? So prison and police abolition. The reason being, police, policing and prisons kind of is the final buck, right? It's where everything that's wrong, everything that's bad, kind of gets swept into there, right? So that's why we're looking at that. But actually, there are a lot of other things that come into this form of change, right? So it's not just targeting policing, right? But... Um, the question at the core of it is, do the systems need to come to an end? Because it's the systems at the top, um, which we've got here, like policy, and um, we've got here, like, racism, um, education cuts, poverty, austerity cuts, ableism, sexism, all of the things that make life kind of difficult, right? Um, these are the things that need changing. Um, and the systems at the bottom, then, should not be necessary because nothing these things won't pour out right if these things are fixed then these things aren't necessary yeah so policing not necessary in the way that it exists education and school staff obviously education is still useful but the policing that occurs within the education system is not as necessary because the things that cause what people consider bad behavior are um, limited, like there's less of that happening, right? And you can have other systems that aren't about control um, in position, yeah? That's kind of the argument. So, um, a quote, by abolish the police, I mean building a world where we do not rely on anti-black white supremacist institutions of order to regulate society. This means that alternative forms of order might be embraced, like community care networks and justice structures rooted in restoration rather than punishment. So then on that note, you have to think about what prisons and what police are for, right? What do they actually do? There's an approach to this, which you might have up on if you do like sociology or something you've got 
retribution, incapacitation, deterrence, and rehabilitation. So if you look at those, um, retribution is the idea is, is kind of like revenge. If someone's done something, something should come back at you for that thing in equal measure. There's also incapacitation. So actually preventing people from doing the things that they do from doing them, right? If they're not on the streets, they're not able to do what they were doing, which is not true. They, they are able to do what they're doing, even if they're not on the streets, but yeah. Um, deterrence, to prevent other people from doing the same thing, right? So people see people being criminalized and um, don't do the same thing. And rehabilitation, so to actually help these people come back into a better place where they won't want to do these things. Um, but, I mean, so, and rehabilitation really is at the heart of a more supportive approach, whereas the other ones aren't really in there. Um, because you've got to ask the question of what is it that actually prevents crime, right? And in asking that question, you have to think about, well, what is it that causes crime, yeah? Remember when I say this, I have a particular approach, right, when I'm explaining this. There are other approaches. And when I say these are the things that cause crime, like, there's obviously way more than I know about, right? So be aware of that. Um, but in terms of what I think are the things that cause crime, it's a lack of food. It's a lack of money. It's a lack of housing. It's a lack of comfort. Um, it's poor mental well-being. And all of those things are all linked to each other, right? And I think a system that supports those things and prioritizes those things would be a better system, right? So then abolition is the approach that takes that and says, let's provide that then, right? Let's defund the police. You might have heard that as a phrase, right? Let's defund the police, take funding out of the police and what they do, because what they do is not support in the same way that abolitionists would want to provide support, right? And actually, when we come back to that comment on anti-blackness and sort of white supremacy within the police, that is something that the police themselves have said about themselves, right? There was the 1998 McPherson inquiry following um, Stephen Lawrence's death and the racist handling of the case. Um, and at that point, they literally said, the Metropolitan Police is institutionally racist, right? And you don't need a report to say that, right? These things had been going on for long enough, but the fact that they're able to observe it in themselves is a sign that there's a sort of fundamental Didn't they first say it's not? Yeah, and then it, and then it changed, right? Um, and, and on top of that, like we're saying, this... I just spoke about police and kind of prisons um, and alluded to education, but education has a lot of flaws in the way that it runs, largely in that there is a huge school-to-prison pipeline, right? Certain kids who have all of these difficulties in the first place fall to the bottom of the pile in education and then they get caught in behaviour systems that do more to harm than they do to help a lot of the time because sorry they don't rehabilitate yeah yeah they don't really um, rehabilitate they just sanction and follow through on sanctions to the point where kids go from school to prue to school again maybe to prue again maybe and a lot of balancing until they get to the age of 18 when they're finally allowed to go to prison right and and, and that's a major part of policing. Policing does happen through schools. Um, so what is the alternative? It's the end of the carceral estate, is what abolitionists say. It's the abolition of policing in other services, such as immigration as well, and education. And it's a cause-focused approach. There's a youth organisation in America propose, um, who proposed eight to abolition. That's like a little hashtag. Um, and they say one thing is defund the police. Another is demilitarise communities. So actually get weapons out of communities, including those that the police have, and probably more so the ones that the police have. Um, remove police from schools. 
um, free people from jails and prisons because they're not doing anything to help. They're just holding people who are able to do the same things anyway, even though they are in prison. Um, repeal laws that criminalise survival. Um, that refers to sort of street markets, the sort of markets that are illegal. Um, but the reason they frame it as survival is because this is easy access to money, right? It's how to get money, or it appears to be how to get money, and it's a strategy of survival. So as a strategy of survival, why is that something that you're penalising instead of providing avenues of actual survival? Yeah? Um, invest in community self-governance. So rather than a national organisation to police, um, communities are able to provide the care that is the alternative. Provide safe housing for everyone and also invest in care, not cops. So it's kind of an amalgamation of a lot of that. Um, and then you've also got to think about what the alternative form of education is once policing is abolished and um, in the education system too, right? What would be a better form of education? Um, move from police to something else, to another sphere, to another sphere, and fix um, by ending and reconstructing. So, that leads me on to the next question. How do you bring about a different way of living? Talk to the people next to you. This is the final stage, by the way. I think we bring about a different way of living without everyone consenting to that way. First, have to convince everyone that that is the better way. Unless you force them, but that being the justice. Being able to be helpful. Because if everyone makes more money, then no one makes more money. Because if everyone starts getting more money, then the economy will also go up, which means yeah, then there's redistributing. Just a bit down. Just a bit down. Anyone got any ideas? How do we bring about a different way of living? No idea? Yes. Not being comfortable in your way of living. Good point. It's, it's an essential, isn't it? Because when you're too comfortable in the way that you are living, what happens? Yeah, it's easy to become oblivious and to not care and not to act um, for, um, on the world around you. Cool. How else do we bring about a different way of living? Yeah. Um, you might have to bring about exposure. So, like, you talk about exposure, it's not just in the sense of, like, opportunities. Um, like, you know, like, being exposed to stuff at this age, um, there were other families that were exposed to their children to that. But just because we don't go to like a private school or like something else, we haven't been told that until like now. And just like me. But there's exposure in terms of opportunities, but there's also exposure in terms of like raising awareness for like problems that are like international problems yeah. and things like that. So like once you start 
exposing people fairly from a really, really young age, considering the fact that we're going to be the future. If you expose us from a young age and we grow up to become the future, then it's just going to carry on from that generation. Yeah, and I think that's quite realistic and doable as well, isn't it, right? Um, amend education, right? Jinx. Make sure that people are much more aware. Just jinx. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, it, it is at the centre of a lot of it. But amending education in itself has been happening for a long time, right? Education has been improving. It's still not at the place where it's meant to be, but it has been improving. And we're falling back on this reform angle in order to do it, right? Or at least it's sustaining the system that still exists while training up the people that are going to end it or change it or do something. But what is that something? Yeah. So, so I just want to ask a question to you. For the teachers, um, what is your... What is your ideal image of education? Because if you don't know what that is, how can we get to that point? I have real issues with selective education. No one in this country gets the same education. Mm. And there's so much in that. Mm. For example, you guys are selected to be in this room from a school that's non-selective. But then there are hundreds of other schools in the country that are selecting people based on income, based on lots of other things. That's, that's a problem for me as a person in education. We didn't become teachers to make money. You don't become a teacher to make money. You become a teacher because you want to teach. And one of the basic problems for me is selection. And that, the inequality that I don't even, that's a separate issue, I don't care about that. I'm talking about the core concept of selecting a child for a school. Yeah, you should go to the school that's closest to you. You shouldn't go to a school that is outside of your borough simply because you can afford to do that. But then what if we start choosing schools? Because some schools don't get enough funding to be the best. Yeah, they don't. But how to bring about a different way of living. This is huge, right? I know it's not as simplistic as I'm saying, but it's about fairness and it's about equality. If we all saw each other as equals and we all gave each other equal respect and all that kind of fairy tale rubbish that I suppose some people think it is, but in education, this is why I was called a Blairite by my, by my year 13s, because I genuinely feel through education you can have equality. We don't offer that, our current system. That's just my opinion, though. Yeah. I think I think well I think mine is like um, the education system is just a mini facet of the global system um, on many different levels, right? So the inequalities that we see in the education system, I'm not at all surprised by because I see those inequalities in the world as a whole, right? Um, and I think instead, if we do look at the way that education would work, one thing that I would be very interested in is a much more global approach to education right so what we learn about needs to include like the world right that doesn't mean literally teach everything in every lesson with no nothing but content it means recognize that england is not the only country in the world um that it's not the only one that has humans that are valuable right um and that there's actually a wealth of knowledge around the world. There shouldn't be a subject called English literature. It should be literature, right? English language can exist though, that's cool. Because people, people need to know English, right? Not in the form that it exists though, it's terrible. Um, but literature should be a thing, right? And when we look at like um, history, it should be fundamentally a global history. There is no way that you can have a history that is like purely European or something, yeah. right? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and I think all of this is a part of the conditioning into um, a hierarchy of value among humans, so right? Other possibilities, we'll start with school. Well, 
It's where it's most manageable on yeah. a mass. No, but I, I mean, I mean, like mm. in terms of change, it's small stuff on a smaller scale because school is basically the survival of the like, scale of the wider society. So if we turn it around and make a change in school, do you think that could make a change outside? Of Possibly. Possibly. But talking about turning around, revolution. So. Revolution means revolve to turn around, right? Um, so, revolution. Here we have a picture. Does anyone know where this is? It's the first black-led slave, um, so like successful slave rebellion. Haiti, yeah, right? So, this is Haiti. Um, I don't need to go to my notes for this one. Um, when you look at historic examples of change, or when we look at historical examples of change, we need to think about what they've done and are there changes needed for the world that we live in. Um, so in the instance of Haiti, um, this is so CLR James, I'd strongly recommend reading The Black Jacobins. It's an excellent book of that account, but also of revolutionary change. Um, when history is written as it ought to be written, it is the moderation and long patience of the masses at which men will wonder, not their ferocity, right? So it's our patience, it's our slowness, it's our sort of satisfaction with the comfort, right? It's this letting the system be that people will be amazed at when we look at this in the future, rather than the moments where big changes happen. Right, so Haiti, the revolution, um, is an example of that. It was an insurrection by self-liberated slaves against French colonial rule. Revolution is not easy. This lasted from 1791 to 1804, um, but it won the abolition of slavery and it land it, and it won self-governance. Right. Um, similarly, if we go to Cuba, um, they talk about the failure of socialism, but where is the success of capitalism in Africa, Asia, and Latin America? That's a quote from Fidel Castro, who is obviously central to the Cuban revolution. Um, and he questions like, what capitalism has done around the world, what it has done in Latin America. Um, it's particularly relevant because Cuba revolted um, against corruption from Batista, who was, um, he did many things like revoking the right to strike, for instance. So preventing unions from being able to act. Um, and there were a lot of um, very, um, do to the people what you need to do kind of things that were happening in order to satisfy bigger demands. And those bigger demands were things that came, like a lot of it was from the US. Um, there was a lot of corruption in the Batista government. Um, and so the Cubans revolted against it. Um, and they gained socialist rule in turn. Um, but both of these examples have happened through violence, right? They've happened through an, a war, yeah? And we need to ask ourselves then, do the ends, does what comes about justify the way in which it happens? Do the ends justify the means, right? Is it about the creation of a new oppressor? If that's what happens, then there's no point in it at all. Right? Is society flawed? And to what extent do we need to go in order to create a new one? If you're living in a constant sphere of violence, then what's nonviolence going to do for you but get you killed? Right? If you don't live in a world of constant violence, then what's violence going to do for you? And is that violence that people would engage with potentially a new form of oppression or is it not right a lot of people ask these questions and it's very circumstance dependent um and following military coups and like when i say unions are important they can't be understated they are hugely important they've been very involved in all of this stuff right um unions are involved in sort of organizing bringing together um and creating a movement um, but following mi military coups that supported union action in Burkina Faso 
um, Thomas Sankara, who we actually looked at in the last elective, um, had a very anti-imperialist stance. He was rejecting foreign aid, um, but instead pushing for agrarian self-sufficiency. So like working the land for yourself, for your own people, spreading it around that land. Nationalism can have issues as well, though, remember. Um, also a strong public health system, um, pushing for the nationalization of land and mineral wealth, nationwide literacy campaigns, and he had plans for more socioeconomic reform. Um, again, he was a socialist who was very inspired actually by um, Che Guevara, so the work that was done in Cuba. Um, but then there was a coup against him um, on US backing. <laughs> and the subsequent immediate reversal of most of those policies by Blaise Campari, who was the guy that led the coup against Sankara. Um, and when you see that, it's like, you've got to question how much a system that seems as though it's going to do something more interesting, something that maybe has support and care, um, is going to be attacked by people that it poses a threat to, right? Um, Venezuela, for instance, has had socialism for a long time. This is not to say that socialism is the answer. This is just to say that it has been an alternative for a lot of people and it's been shut down, right? So when there have been alternatives, they still exist within global capitalism that in itself needs addressing. So even a revolution, even something as heavy as that can be undermined, right? Um, it can be undermined by a global system and it's that we've got a somehow approach. And I'm standing here without the actual answer to this question, how do you end injustice? And I think people said that at the start of the lesson, right? That there's too many different things and there's too many different pressures to be able to end injustice. But what are the approaches and what are the ways of tackling individual specific issues? Because individual specific issues are not actually individual and specific. They're all connected in creating a stronger um, and more supportive world for the people around us, right? Um, so I'm going to end it, or like end this little bit, with this quote. The author and intellectual Cornel West has said that justice is what love looks like in public, right? And I often think that neoliberalism, so capitalism, basically, um, is what lovelessness looks like as policy, right? I've been foregrounding dehumanization and I actually think the alternative to dehumanization is showing love and compassion and support to other people, right? And that only happens when they're considered human to you, right? These two books are very useful and very easy to read. I purposefully selected them because they are easy to read. A lot of books in this field are not that easy, but you can approach. Um, Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, is a big recommendation because it um, basically explains what the issues are on a global level and how they've continued from colonial rule. Um, and another one is Bell Hooks, it's all about love. And actually this book has been, it, it means a lot to a lot of different people. Um, it's genuinely, it's like it's about an approach to your personal interactions with the people around you, um, to family, but also to nations and to the world. Um, and it can really mean something um, in providing a vision for what a better world might be. But the final question then that I'm going to ask you to talk to the person next to you on is, what is the best strategy for a better world? Talk to the people next to you. Um, okay, no matter.
comes problem someone's going to be unhappy about it. Go on, what do you think? I don't know if I don't know if I don't know if I don't know not you, not you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but like, but how much of a difference are we going to make? What are they saying? What are they saying? It's like a step to the side. All four dictatorships? No, it's not a step to the side. Then it's calm. You know, we call that a bit... You call that a benevolent dictatorship if you want to look it up. Like, there's a lot of stuff about benevolence. Yeah, it's like a good dictatorship. A dictatorship that is nice. I think good dictator. Yeah. I say you'd be a good dictator. Well, what's your first policy? What's the first thing you're going to do? <laughs> so what? Everyone <laughs> Do what you want is a mentality of capitalism, I can't lie. And it leads to some pretty bad consequences. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening and take that question with you. Enjoy. Good luck. Okay, I'm going to stop recording.